Hello and welcome to Here with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with floating cities, because why? Because they just fucking do. This is season one, and we are talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. I'm joined by my friend Nate, and my name is Tyler. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes, where we will explore this game chapter by chapter. Today's chapter, we are getting into... Chapter eight. Nate, I gotta say, it is nice to be back in the United States. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit for us. And, you know, I'll just simplify it. I'll say life comes at you fast, you know? So both of mm. us, you were on your tour, you were doing your thing, making dreams come true for senior citizens. And I was dealing with the rigors of military family life to the point where I just, I hit a wall and took two weeks off of work Took two weeks off of doing anything podcast related. Uh, listeners may notice that part two of our triangle strategy never happened. I assure you it's in the works. But uh, it's been an interesting and productive time for me putting things in my life in the correct places where they belong. Because when when you're doing all this stuff and you're, you're living life at this speed, sometimes the pieces of of your life don't get put in their correct position and you just kind of keep trudging along and tell yourself it's okay it'll be fine right so both of us have had a little bit of a period of needing to step away from the podcast we apologize for that but not really because this is for fun and if it stops being fun for us it probably is going to stop being fun for you. Yeah, it was it was worthwhile. We have we've taken a little time to reorganize ourselves and get back into it. Tyler, I need to make a interjection and yeah. before we get started. Now, in our last episode, I waxed on about the Zohar quite a bit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we we had a little bit of a back and forth discussion about it and if anything, that discussion highlights how this podcast is very raw, unresearched, our just gut reactions, our in-the-moment playing the game, how we're feeling about it, and our connection to the, the series history and other RPGs in general. Like, we are laying that out bare for our listeners. We're not, we're not proposing that we're one thing and then going behind the scenes and doing all this other stuff. So, I need to elaborate on that a little bit. When I confronted you about Alvis's seemingly Zohar pendant around his neck, yes. I was I was picturing a certain thing. And I I later deconstructed that I came down to the fact that I played Xenosaga first. Maybe 50, somewhere between 15 to 20 years before I played Xeno Gears. Now that is the incorrect order in which I should have done those things, but it's just the way it worked out. Xeno Gears had naked people in it when I was 12, so I was too scared to own that game in the off chance that my mom would have walked in while said, said naked people are in it. I think I saw that in a issue of GamePro magazine or something, and I was like, oh god, too risky, you know? So <laughs> um, I did not get Xeno Gears, even though it looked hella cool, and I had a demo of it of me punching wolves in the mountains from some sort of Final Fantasy or Parasite Eve I owned. I don't know. So I played Xeno Saga first, and in my head, that is the definitive Zohar. Now that one, it is the magic credit card, the, the gold um, monolith, so to speak, but it's more mechanical, and I, I don't know how to describe it. It's got a green light in the center. It doesn't have an eyeball, whereas I'd say the Zohar from Xeno Gears 
looks more like an ancient relic, Egyptian almost, like something a little bit more origins of the world to me than the Zohar from Xenosaga, which looks more mechanical. Now, the Xenosaga Zohar also has the addition of two golden triangles about two-thirds of the way up of its face jutting out from the side. Those are crossed? Yep. And those are not present in the original Xenogears Zohar. So when that same shape was reflected in Alvis's pendant, and I said, it's absolutely the Zohar, and I pushed you in that space too to say, why aren't you seeing it? Well, it's totally understandable that you didn't see it because you didn't play Xenosaga. <laughs> and I'm going off of my backwards perspective of things. So I, I apologize that I pushed a little bit on that one and was kind of like badgering you into that opinion. And you're like, yeah, I guess I see it. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can you can hear that we weren't in complete alignment on that one, I think. Now, we, we have no idea how far our heads are up our asses here um, exactly. on this podcast. Um, but but Nate, I, th- I think you shared with me in an offline conversation that you saw that the original release for Xenoblade had a different symbol around Alvis's neck. Yes, it looks more like a generic old timey key with uh, it's got a circle and then a shaft protruding from the circle and then two little prongs that would turn the the I don't know oh, yeah. the, the keyword yeah yep two little teeth. Um, funny note, my parents live in a mo- like a faux colonial home that they built on Lake Wasoda in Wisconsin, and we had actual giant blacksmith keys with like <laughs> turnable locks on each door. And one time a-, a girlfriend was in my car and she saw this key sitting on the floorboard of my passenger seat. And, uh, she's like, what is this? Why do you have this? I'm like, that's the key to my house. <laughs> She did not believe me at all. But uh, so I'm familiar with that shape. Everybody else who, you know, it's a pretty uh, standard image. And that is what hangs around Alphys' neck in the original Wii Xenoblade. So there may be a little bit of a retcon going on there or a little bit of like uh, retroactive connectivity instead of continuity in Mm -hmm. a way. Uh, to kind of tie the series a little bit more together or allude to other things happening. So all that to say, that's a long discussion, but long story short, I kind of fucked up last time. Oh, no, it's it's fun to, to draw these connections. And who knows what the remake developers were picturing? They Maybe maybe there is some uh, relevance to that change of the item around Alvis, Alvis's neck. We don't really know. Pulling us back into the plot here, we arrive at the Aerith... See, it is a large basin of water sitting on the on top of Bionis. If you can imagine the silhouette of Bionis, it's it's got this pair of wings coming out of the back of its head. They kind of look like moose antlers or some sort of bony, rocky bowl that comes out the back and then then stretches out horizontally for i don't know let's say two miles maybe more several miles sure why not and this basin is filled up with water over time 
making a C. It certainly feels like a C. Um, when we arrive here, we, we hear seagulls cawing, we hear waves crashing softly, we can see golden grass on the shore. There are trees with red blossoms which glow purple at night. There are blue flowers that are as tall as a person and, and they glow green at night. Large floating structures all around us. We don't know what those are yet, but we'll find out. There's also large coral hanging off the sides of the rocks above the water. Oh, also at night here, there are auroras of light, purple, red, green, and there's debris falling down into the sea from space. They look kind of like falling stars, but rather slow and gently, and they're coming down everywhere. That is a definable weather condition that they tell you about in some of the side quest content, is that certain monsters will only show up during Starfall. That is something that, it's not just a stylistic trapping that they put on the edge. You can actually mm -hmm. watch as stars, this debris, as you said, like will drop in front of your face and it's considered a weather condition so the way rain hits a certain area and this there is rain in this area as well but the way rain hits in certain areas starfall happens in this area as well i'm also kind of reminded of satoro marsh we talked about the undulating conditions of night and day and how ether seems to erupt forth in certain stages of mm -hmm. It kind of in, in like a cycle itself of Bionis being awake and asleep amidst this like changing of um, weather and night and day and all the quests that ask you to have some of these special conditions. I just want to add that I tested this out for the first time. The game has a feature where you can change from day to night. And at first I was not able to confirm whether am I actually rotating a cycle forward and cycling through conditions or is it just literally changing my skybox and my possible quest content but I'm not really cycling through the toggle states of weather and uh, night conditions and things like that. I tested it out because some of these quests were so frustratingly specific that I finally did get it to trigger the starfall condition just by rotating the clock over and over from day to night, day to night. And that kind of keyed me in that it is actually winding the clock of the game forward and potentially triggering some of those statuses when you do that. So if you find yourself frustrated that you can't get a certain condition, try that out, cycle that a few times and see if you can hit the sweet spot. Sure, all right. Cool, th thanks for that tip there. Let's get back to our party. We fill Melia in on the whole story of what we're doing here. Melia says it's not common for Homs to visit Erithsea, and she points out Prison Island to us. We can see it, it's over there. It's an enormous floating column of volcanic rock with several jagged stone towers hovering several feet above the water. It has eerie glowing entranceways shining with a ghostly white light. It looks very dark and deathly compared to the surroundings, which are otherwise very lush and pretty. Sticking out of one of the sides of Prison Island is a bridge, and I wonder if it's the same bridge from the vision we saw in Tefra Cave. Melia also points out the High Entia, capital city of Alkamath, which is also floating. It kind of opposes Prison Island in this zone here. Alkamath is several white stone cloud city-like saucers hovering below and around a much larger white saucer that has a monolithic white tower in the center, like a citadel. It's very Shavat-like. I was just gonna say that it, in, in these games, yeah, in these games, when you want to establish someone of higher intellect and sophistication, 
give them a floating white city above everyone else. With polished rounded edges. Brian asks, what is it that's making this city float? And Melia says she does not know what kind of technology makes the city hover and that she doesn't need to know. Dunbin supports this line of thinking and uses a completely nonsensical bread analogy. You can eat bread without knowing how to bake it. Makes sense to me. It's a bad analogy because I cannot know how to cook bread, but still know the science of how bread is cooked, right? You cannot be a chef and still know that heat kind of sears and develops the flavors within and cooks through uh, the contents of certain edible products you know like whereas they're just straight up saying this city floats we have no idea how and we don't care do you think melia doesn't know or all hyentia don't know as we get into it that will be a good question because there is a certain level among their culture of basically this is the way it's always been this is the way it always will be certain people will talk about ages ago these groups existed Oh well, you know, like their society seems so idyllic that it's like they're just going to continue on this way forever to some degree. The group also elects to share their journey with Melia to fill her in on what's going on and why they're here, why they need to get to Prison Island. But at first she doesn't want to pry and remains distant. Silk treats her as one of them due to the ordeals they've overcome together she need not see herself as separate from them for the time being. So I'm seeing kind of a different philosophy. Maybe this is a Homs way of thinking of you bind together and through mutual trauma and survival, you come out better through those connections. Whereas maybe the high anti have more of a society built around the individualism and stasis of being a singular entity and you don't pry into other people's business you don't worry about it, it seems like the high entity have certainly taken a position of not worrying about Homs in the slightest when they look upon what's happening in lower uh bionis so i think that's a difference in maybe cultural or even biological programming on their part. Mm -hmm. Although she's noticed that Shulta seem awful special, having helped her destroy that Telethia in Machna Forest. Yeah, I'll also add that for the first time in this game, I noticed that Homs is not plural. You can be talking about a singular human-like entity, and they the, the singular tense is Homs still. I always thought they were talking about plural Hom people but not not in this case it's always homs mm, i haven't picked up on that like you would say it this way shulk is a homs but if i were ricky i would say shulk is a hum hum ricky's friend right hum hum clever <laughs> yes i did break my ricky cherry by the way i i indulged in the ricky experience for our listeners i might pull out some of that for later but just to mm. let you know i'm i am a completionist i want to taste all the flavors within the xenoblade parfait you can reduce the amount of grinding that you're doing if you use the steel ability he's got so yeah he's got his uses so how do we get to this floating capital well distributed throughout the air with sea are these floating islands that we've seen not referring to the capital not referring to prison island there are these other smaller islands they're called floating reefs there's 
maybe a dozen of them, and they each have teleporters that either take you to or receive you. Islands could have anywhere from one to three, maybe four teleporters on them, and you kind of hop from floating reef to floating reef. You do very little swimming throughout the Aerith Sea for as much water as there is around here. Maybe you did very little swimming. Uh-oh. My life my life was consumed with swimming in this area. Oh my God. Gross. Yeah. I, Why? The auto run feature was a godsend. I I think I typed up a whole work email while on auto run at one point. But um I I will comment about these teleporters. Um they are in instantaneous reconstitution from one location to another you are dissolved and repurposed in another area immediately this technology is is advanced beyond anything we've witnessed so far in the game save for maybe the dlc no pond teleporter that we don't even know is maybe actually a part of the, the story or the existence in the game it might just be a like we said a dlc element they tacked on at the end so I was left kind of wondering, when I warp to landmarks in the world, am I actually using some kind of diegetic magic or means to instantly arrive there that exists within the world of the game? Or is it strictly a gameplay consideration? Like, when we choose to warp back to Colony 9, are we actually warping via some mechanism? Or is it just black screen and my characters literally ran all the way back there and the game is saving me the trouble of having to witness that myself? I don't know, but this technology is the first time I've seen it represented in front of my eyes. That's an interesting question. Well, I don't remember ever receiving a particular like amulet or device that takes us from one monument, city center, point of interest uh, to another. So maybe we are just hoofing it up and down. Yeah, based on my habits at this point. This journey is probably gone on for about six and a half years then, because I am all over the place. Ryan, we haven't seen you in 18 months. What are you doing back here? Oh, I just, I wanted to talk to this NPC and that NPC and return this dagger to this NPC and... All right, you know what? I'll see you later. Yeah, and the the other thing is, do we go through Tefra Cave every single time? I mean, we do. Yeah. Do we fight giant spiders every time? We paint the walls of Tefra Cave with spider blood because we are overpowered by now. Yes. I uh, about the ARC. My my main observation that I take away from this as I take it all in Mm -hmm. is this game never fails to achieve and execute scale well. Just like I couldn't fathom the waterfalls of Machna being physically there in front of me in location. This Mm -hmm. sea is vast and at the same time actually traversable via your body, for better or worse. Uh, Alchemoth kind of seems small for an entire civilization. When you first arrive in that cup scene, you see this bubbly white, you know ball off in the corner and you think okay that's a that's a whole country that's a whole civilization when you're viewing it from the beach but as i travel it becomes more and more and more imposing and massive and it's looming over me and i'm starting to think holy shit that thing is actually really here in the game (laughs) it's not like some jpeg they hit off in the clouds you know and yeah. that, this game always does that, and I'm always blown away by it. And I'm thinking, man, if I played this on the Wii, 
how blown would my mind have been? I, I almost want to go back and watch videos of the Wii version just to see if it actually executes the same way it's doing on the Switch or if that's a part of the definitive edition consideration is pulling some of these things into the physical world. But when I read about the upgrades, it didn't say anything along those lines. So I have to imagine that we executed this as well. You said you're a completionist. Did you complete the map of Aerith Sea by swimming laps all over this place? Uh, I did not complete the oh, map. Oh, thank God. But, thank um, so... <laughs> I have a note about that later, and maybe um, when I get to it, I'll just talk about it, and you can All right. interject it, or maybe it'll happen dynamically, and you leave this whole bit sure. in here. But um, yeah, I I'm a completionist in the sense of I did every quest I possibly could. Again, for better or worse, I have some very interesting things to say about that process, but I did it. And in the end, I was glad I did it, but it it really weighed on me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that this zone's music pretty great. The night music really amazing. So it, it wasn't the worst thing in the world to explore it, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into some music talk later for sure. Um, yeah. Nate, did you go straight to the capital? I did at first because I was just so overwhelmed. <laughs> and again, because I had that experience in Machna of like, wait, this sea is actually here. I did have a sense of like, you know what? Maybe I should hit up some cutscenes first and get the ball rolling on some things. Because you always get into that point where it's like, you think, all right, I did all the side stuff. I'm good to go. I'm ready to hit the main story. You do like a small cutscene where like Shulk talks to some random NPC and then walks outside a door. And then there are 19 more exclamation marks on the map because you finish that cutscene and hit a threshold. And you're like, God damn it. <laughs> you know? So I was like, maybe I better slam out some cutscenes here and fill up my quest log first. And then I'll, na- I'll naturally explore the area in pursuit of these objectives. Wise idea. I played around floating reefs uh, for quite a while before I went into the capital. One thing I will add quick is yeah. we've been throwing around the term high antia, right? But this is official confirmation of what we were talking about before the wing heads are high antia wing so heads we oh, I love it we get that confirmation here bird lady for example that means high antia so uh, in uh ricky speak so um that that was a little bit vague before but we had surmised as much but now we have the official mm-hmm. uh lore reveal <laughs> the party chooses to stay behind while melia enters the city and we gain control of melia Another omniscient uh, narrator scene happens after we control Melia for a bit and just kind of peruse the city. There's a scene where several high antia women are gathered, seemingly. Mean girls. Yeah, exactly. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Whatever. Those rules aren't real. You can't sit with us! The second consort's child survived her ordeal, says the first consort, Yumea. Tyria seeks to fulfill the order. Eumaea says it's stupidity to attempt as much within the capital with all of the guards and everybody around. Another woman claims they'll have their chance soon enough. So if I'm to take everything I learned from that scene and maybe you have additional quotes of interest to throw in, I don't know if I hit all of the 
pertinent ones to you? I'll, I'll lay some descriptions down, but do you want to finish your thought, your thought, yeah. your thought first? So this is one of those, uh, what I would call an anime moment where they just, they toss you in the deep end to just people talking about stuff and laying down terms and you, you got to play a detective a little bit. So if I'm going to do a theory breakdown of what I just witnessed, I'm going to say that Melia is the heir to the throne. She is the daughter of another of the emperor's consorts. Uh, the first consort does not like that. The ordeal, as she stated, was the Magna Forest event with the Telethia, and it was engineered to kill Melia, but we stepped in and saved her. The The Telethia in the tank that we saw in the end of the last chapter with a birdhead lady looking at it is proof that certain high Entia are creating weapons for their own ends. That's the end of my theory. Yes. I'll do a little window dressing here. Um, Yumea, she looks rather royal. She has elf ears. She stands tall and proud. She wears a richly decorated purple, white, and blue dress. Of course, angel wings and a purple circlet. Uh, the woman kneeling, Tyria, she's got a mask on, and she seems subservient to Yumea in some sort of way. And the third mean girl that walks in, her name is question mark, question mark, question mark. And when she joins the conversation, she's walking in from a corner in a dramatic anime sort of, ooh, you know, wild card sort of uh, visual rhetoric. Guys, why aren't the brakes working? Because I cut the brakes! Wild card, bitches! Yeah! What? And the shot of her is rather low, like at the ankle. And and then as the shot like kind of pans upwards, we can see black leggings, red boots, a red and black skirt with these weird anti-gravity strips that like curl out in front of her and the lower half of her wings. But we cut to black before we can actually see her face. So yep. we, we have another sequence where Melia is allowed to explore the town after that cut scene. I don't have a ton of notes for this. It's really just walking around inside the capital it's kind of that serene utopian architecture that you see in a lot of things there isn't much it's all creative and beautiful and the artists are doing an amazing job but at the same time it's not very original to me so picture that same kind of setting the utopian heavenly uh high fantasy yet technological setting you've seen in many other things and you've got the picture pretty much nailed down in your head when we walk into the great hall we can see cream colored stone with red and gold accents gold tinted windows that bathe the room in, in an amber glow um, there are statues in this great hall that look rather similar to the ones we saw in Satoral Marsh, the Xenogears looking one. They're nearby. The citizens, though, don't have much to say about what the statues are about. I so, will contradict you on that one. Oh, yeah? I have a note that a high entity that Melia talks to looks on at one of the massive angelic statues with wings both on its helm and its back and asks the question out loud, could it be that our people have devolved over the millennia? So the mm. statue has back wings in addition to head wings. Really? Yeah, that that was a conversation that I had with an NPC. Oh, shoot. I don't have that down. Hm. Got it. Great. Love it. Two heads are better than one, Tyler. Four wings are better than two. Damn it. We need four people on the podcast. Sounds like chaos. Although um, every F and F and F does it. Every F and FF. That's too, that's, ma that's too many source files and channels for me to break in the 
the gigabytes will be massive. Melia arrives at the throne room. Melia comes to speak with the Emperor. She's kneeling before the Emperor. A handler to the Emperor announces her as Princess Melia. So we have a princess on our hands. Confirmed. Confirmed. The Emperor's name is Sorian, S-O-R-E-A-N. He stands in a golden mushroom cap and is framed by several gilded tablets. A young man, Hyantia, is at his left and to his right, farther to the right, is another Hyantia in red, and she fits the description of Mean Girl number three. Yeah, I immediately noticed that. I was like, that is the, I don't know if I want to say golden, but definitely a shining bronze uh, uh, skirt, if I'm remembering correctly. Does that sound right? It was the- like, um, like a strawberry yogurt colored skirt okay. or, or accents on her clothing armor. Yeah, and so that same skirt we witnessed in that scene is on full display here. I, I thought we would have been kind of toyed with a little bit longer before mm-hmm. confirming that that, what do you want to call it, uh, disruptive element in the previous scene was close to the Emperor. You mm-hmm. know, I thought we would have been, we had a little bit more tension played with with that character, but they kind of just, I don't know, it wasn't subtle in the slightest. To me, it was like, oh, hey, the uh shit stirrers are right here in the throne room with us she sticks out like a sore thumb among the other royals the other ones look like they're ready to reign carefully and peacefully for 50 years and she looks like she's about to crack someone across the ass with a paddle her name is minister lorithia she is an attractive vixen-like figure that makes me feel uneasy with her suggestions i'll say this um before you send to the throne room uh, melia can uh, visit a place called the sky terrace the view of the city below and the scope of everything is yet again massive kind of blowing my mind it's rare for open world games to allow me to believe their sense of scale you know usually you get told you're in this giant world and then you visit a town and there's three buildings and you're wondering where the hell do people sleep you know so in this city i'm i am legitimately blown away by the scale they achieve entire pod neighborhoods dangle below and below that the geography of the air sea zone is still all represented as i remember traversing it Prison Island is off in the distance. Even Bionis' head is at an understandable scale and distance at this moment. I've never seen a game quite pull it off like this one has. I'm left wondering, like, are all of these locations actually rendered in real time? Like, no artifacts, no JPEGs, no whatever? It's really impressive to me. Like I said, if this was done on the Wii, I'm kind of blown away. So this Sky Terrace, like I I previously said, I was looking at this below as I moved up to the city, right? Sky Terrace is at the very top and it's delivering me. I've extended the accordion all the way out now and I'm seeing the limits at which it can stretch it. I'm kind of blown away. There's a big heart eyes conversation at the top of the terrace between Melia and Ryan. I I obviously don't have access to that yet, but I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if Ryan is just the perfect kind of dumb oaf that someone like Melia could be into or grow to love. She's got so many people of intelligence and circumstance surrounding her life, giving her advice that she just needs a big dumb teddy bear to hug her and to 
for her to boss around and ease yeah. her willing subjugant. And and we've already established the heart eyes conversation doesn't mean anything in that regard, but I like to imagine. The Emperor Daddy is happy. Melia slew the Telethia. Callian, the Hyentia, immediately to the Emperor's side, says that Shulk and company have been arrested while Melia's been away. And that's because Shulk has the Monado. We cut to a stone etching that's built into the throne room. The impression I'm getting is that it's been cut out of a cave wall somewhere else and has been installed here. There is a legend passed down through the generations of a divine weapon, the Monado. It is said that the Bionis itself bestows the blade upon a chosen one. However, if the chosen one is black of heart, he will cause the destruction of the High Entia. So, my thought is, the High Entia's empire is at stake if the Bionis' chosen one is a sinister fellow. So that's why they must arrest Shulk. We've certainly seen Shulk be benevolent and magnanimous and all of his sides of wanting to help others. So from our perspective as a player, we, we think Shulk equals good guy, not Blackheart. There's a side of me of my wanton, indiscriminate murder of nearly all races that aren't A, a version of white people, or B, a plush toy. It leaves me wondering if that's actually true about Shulk. We don't know what we don't know about him, how the Monado judges people, or how the Bionis judges people. Like, think of the Igna, you know? What if what if you go up to the Bionis's head, you meet him, and you're like, hey, I did everything you asked, I served the Monado, and he's like... Yeah, Igna are my favorite direct children, and you fucking obliterated them. <laughs> that's that's something I worry about in my quest, is where do I draw the line? Is it just help all the other white people? I don't know. Good question. Good question. Although the Homs and Colony 9 are a little more olive-skinned. They're not black people, but Authoron was like uh, a black... <laughs> Authoron had darker skin, yes, but this <laughs> this is typical of Japanese games. I, I'm not, yeah. we're, we're not getting into it, you know, and I consider myself a, a fairly uh, a progressive thinker in a lot of ways. So I, at times, are I am disappointed in representation in Japanese games because when they choose to represent somebody who is a non-white, it's often marred by some sort of negative element or stereotype and i don't like that so this game uh it doesn't do anything bad but it doesn't particularly do anything good either in that department uh yeah at least um right so under arrest the emperor aims to interrogate them via a divine seer we learn in this conversation that melia is to be crowned queen at an unknown point in the near future mm -hmm. and that her brother actually supports this they share a conversation that you you would think there'd be some political gaming going on but her brother callian is just you know straight up like yeah i'm cool i'm down for it let's go so unless there's some twist coming later uh 
which you know it can happen at any point right now he's he coming seems, off as pretty genuine to me yeah exactly he comes off as a pretty straightforward genuine dude especially with some things we see later but um melia is struck with a lot of regret and questioning the actions of machna forest she doesn't feel right to be congratulated and be given the accolade of defeating the telethia and be trusted with this new position of being the leader and the emperor tells her mourn the dead soldiers that helped her in dispatching the telethia but also that it was their duty to give their lives in service of her and that still doesn't sit right with her so in that same vein of you know a pure heart a benevolent spirit melia seems to possess something that high entia in general don't as a society they see themselves as very duty driven and purposeful in their uh, actions and their sacrifices where melia has a little bit more heart to her than the typical high entia if i'm reading that dialogue correctly you could say the same for any of the female hyentia we've seen so far the female hyentia we've seen so far i consider much more in the motivated by circumstance camp instead of motivated by emotional feelings like melia is i see a stark contrast between melia and all of her supposed kin in representation of character. When the conversation ends, Callian walks away and then Mean Girl 3, I mean, Minister Larithia walks into the conversation. Now that we see Minister Larithia up close, her upper half is very revealing, showing a beige, black, and purple top, displaying very generous cleavage, silver hair, perfect facial features, red sleeves that go from wrist to armpit, and obligatory weird-ass shoulder armor. She says she supports Melia becoming queen as well. I am to be crown princess. Yes, you are. The ministries of research and records are united in support of his majesty's decision. What we have learned from this sentence is that Larithia is attached to the ministries of research and records. And we, uh, as Nate noted a little bit ago, someone's making weaponized telethia in the capital and maybe she has something to do with it she has a moment with melia where she supports melia taking matters into her own hands when it comes to shulk the, the imprisonment the monado all of those concerns she had in asserting that shulk was a good dude and everything and he shouldn't be detained there's a little bit of shit stirring here from larithia again in that previous scene where Tyria was saying she could just go out and assassinate Melia and you know the the previous attempt failed and everything Larithia was saying hey just cool your jets there will be opportunities here for things to happen and so I, I'm feeling a little bit of that that push she's giving Melia to like you know what do your own thing the emperor he has his opinions and everything but your heart's in the right place follow your heart and I I don't think that that's a um a, a selfless assertion on her part if that makes sense we feel like that Melia's being set up. We want you to be queen. Maybe they'll, they'll stumble on a trap we set on the way. Yes, definitely manipulation. I, I wrote that uh, Minister Larithia is an attractive, vixen-like figure that makes me feel uneasy with her suggestions and assertions that Melia takes matters into her own hands. 
listeners might have me pegged as paying attention to a couple prominent physical traits when I say that, but I'm actually tapping into the expression of eye shape. This is a very anime thing again that entire characterizations can be achieved in a mischievous and deviant eye shape of a character anime is known for creating huge eyes that eat up 70 percent of a character's face so if you downplay that and create some edge to it and narrow those confines a little bit it creates this like sinister element to it um but that is what I'm seeing in this character. They've, they've made a purpose to show her as a little bit more distrustful. And uh, the artist is expressing that in how they draw the eyes. Yeah, also the way she dresses, too. Well, um, the, not, mean, not the way she dresses, but like the shit, the, the color scheme of her dress. Oh, for sure. And, and that's something in general as we run around Alchemoth. Everybody has some version of revealing clothing, especially if you're a female in the area. So, um you know, I, I gradually kind of got desensitized to that. And it's just like, okay, this is just the art style. You know, it's their culture or something. But Or or the, the art director was f- feeling it at that moment. But I also see that in the game in general. That's like, um, Sharla does not get a lot of great options for protecting her um, midsection and chest. <laughs> if I may be so blunt. As far as armor goes, yeah, that's that's true. So that's true. If I were to postulate on Larithia, I'm just gonna say I think she enjoys stepping on people. Can I say that? You talked about a paddle earlier. I think uh, <laughs> a, a yeah, high yeah. a high a. Uh, a high heel pressed firmly into someone's chest might be in her future, both societally and within her personal chambers. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. As she as she navigates the echelons of society and politics. Exactly. And in her space bedroom. We where are we here? I think we transitioned to the prison room that actually isn't a prison. Yes. We're in a luxurious prison cell, one of the a bubble room um, with sweeping views of Alkamath uh, from up on high. It is very Cloud City-like, a la um, Empire Strikes Back. We are speaking with one another, relaxing, and who enters but Alvis. It turns out that Alvis is the divine seer under the employ of the emperor here. Now, Alvis isn't a high entia, not by any wings that we can see. Who knows, he may have had his uh, bird ears chopped off. He speaks a little bit about his heritage later. We won't get answers, but he will shine a light in that direction. Alvis doesn't actually do an interrogation here. Alvis simply explains to the group that the Monado is a sensitive item to the high entia, and they are kind of keeping an eye on it. But Alvis has the power, apparently, to free us from this prison cell we're invited to walk the city in the earth sea there's a really neat cinemagraphic trick that takes place in one of these shots in this scene so what happens is in one of these shots here shulk is facing alvis and alvis is standing in front of a glass window pointed at prison island we can see prison island deep 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 in the background and as the camera shifts throughout the shot alvis eclipses prison island as he's talking cryptically about the monado i might be reading into it but i thought that the unity of the script and the blocking and the camera work uh, was a really clever neat thing that might be a bit foreboding i feel that i feel 
even back to Xenogears and the limitations of the PlayStation 1, they were already tapping into what they could do with um, scene composition and blocking and character placement and everything. So it, with the technology on display here and, you know, the sky's the limit of what they can do now, it has to be intentional at this point because there's no limitation. As Alvis walked into the room, the camera was highlighting the feet, the legs, before they showed Alvis's face, but I already knew it was him because I recognized those pointless anime pants immediately. His pants are so stupid they make absolutely no sense. It's distractingly bad. Remind me what his pants look like. I'm they're like they're they're like this and cream coffiny of swirls and buttons and circles and like they're skin tight. Oh yeah, All you right. know it's just nah. The it same. does look like it probably stuck out like a sore thumb in earlier chapters, but now that we're here in High Entia Land, it does look consistent with the other apparel we're seeing. That is the jacket, true. not so much, but the pants. I would say is in line with expectations. That is a true and fair point. I'm when I get stuck in an idea, I carry it through to its fullest. So I'm I'm still stuck on the pants. Still stuck on the pants. Got the zipper stuck. Can't get it out. Exactly. He's going to smooth everything over for us, though, so we like Elvis now. We, we're we no longer on the beach like, who the hell is this guy? What He's manipulating us. He's a bad guy. He's, he wants me to do his bidding or something. I think we're past all that, right? You're feeling good about Elvis? We're feeling... We're enticed to feel disarmed about Elvis. I think he's 15% less suspicious than he was when we first met him. That scene ends... And immediately picks up again with the group not leaving their room, although they're free to, and a Hyantia guard charges into the room. He says a squadron of Hyantia repairing a transporter out in the Earth Sea need help. They've been captured by the Chromar, and uh, they need assistance. Where's Alvis? Well, Alvis peaced out a little bit ago. Well, they need help. Well, we will help. And so we regain control of our party, and we are at leisure to explore the capital as we please. We could go out there. But it's exploration and questing time first. I have in all caps written, video game quest time. People are in trouble. I'm taking the Riki plunge. Wish me patience. This is a prime example of, you know, hey, somebody's in trouble. Go help them. You know, whatever. It's like, this is video game 101 of like, a good designer says, all right, we, we have thrown way too much exposition at them, whatever. We got to let them push some buttons. You gotta let them run around. And Tetsuya Takahashi, I think that's a skill that's either been developed or other people have come in to tell him that because there were definitely some moments in Zeno Gears where he did not know about that that aspect of game design where it's like, all right, that was a lot. Just let him run around and hit some people for a while. I'm running around the city, talking to people a little bit, getting some lore, getting some side quests. I stumble upon an interesting conversation. Somebody tells me long ago they used to worship Bionis in Alchemoth. So, first off, they no longer worship Bionis in Alchemoth. I would think that the place you live on, the planet, so to speak, is worth some kind of reverence, but I guess they used to worship it and they don't do that anymore. That was long ago. Got this a clue that sheds some light on that yeah. near the end of the chapter. Sure, and this this group that worshipped him was called the Bionite Order. To me, that sounds kind of like an MLM scheme. With your order of Bionite, you can kiss those aches and pains goodbye, right? <laughs> yes, yes. 
for only $200 or one humming cat. Get your own Bionite today. Get your own Bionite today. My my biggest question from that small little... The citizens talk of the order removing non-believers. So getting into the space where Takahashi is tackling both late-stage capitalism when we're looking at Colony 6, and now he's hitting on religious zealotry in the same game. So he's expanded his scope from his Gears days, where Gears was all about religious zealotry and manipulation, but now we've got multiple flavors in the same game of tackling societal woes. All Kamatha separated by three subsections. We've already talked about the Golden Halls with the Throne Room and similar, um, but the exterior, there are two levels. They're both enormous semicircular terraces connected by two moving walkways set at an angle. There are vehicles in the air, the small ones, they look like they're for air defense, and the larger ones, most usually on the ground, they look like they're moving freight or are public transit and um, from the large bubble dome like windows around here we have gorgeous views of the sea and we can see prison island in the distance you're gonna pick up maybe 20 quests to start you know what maybe another 15 as you advance in reputation level in alchemoth here yeah and as the completionist do you want to break down of the ones i found most interesting did you do all sure. of them did you get I- into it I've been trying to hide this from you, but I've completed this chapter a while and I put a toe into the following chapter just so that I could have control back and I've just been crushing quests okay. without advancing plot. And so I've done fuck ton of questing in Eretzee. <laughs> I enter the side quest verse. It consumes me. It becomes all I think about for hours on end. Yes. And I'm going to break some of those down. So first off, a high anti guard wants to save himself paperwork. He wants to not have to pull on bureaucratic levers needed to justify killing monsters simply. He says, quote, it's a bit cheeky, unquote, but I should just go do it for him. So the the Homs are outside the law. So instead of having him having to get approval to kill a bunch of rabid beasts outside, he's just going to have it, us do it for him. This takes the place of the Nopon murder fest as this guy delivers me to several locations to kill random monsters. Next, a man needs two Lexus beards for a new instrument. I'm intrigued of what instrument you can make with beards, but yeah, maybe these hairs are like fine cords that are resilient and strummable. So each hair is long and capable of being stretched taut across a wooden frame so that's cool i we don't see it in game but hey it is what it is a second person sends me on murder quest a woman she gives me a desperate plea on how she just got this new job but is too weak to subjugate any of the monsters needed to survey them and gather data she lets slip amidst a conversation quote this manipulation thing is pretty easy unquote Hold up, lady. We're not married yet. Spectacular. I, I noticed, um, you know, last chapter I commented about Frontier Village being too big. Alchemos dome area, just the one dome. This thing is a bubbling cacophony of like nine domes or something like that. The one dome I'm in now is just too fucking big. It 
takes like 40 seconds to ride the escalator to the different to the other level below where like nine more quests are and they have me running back and forth there are teleports to each little location but i still find myself running suspiciously long periods of time and i think okay you know this is a well-made game well designed the scale is amazing i'm enthralled with it but in this moment somebody fucked up right it's I don't know if somebody fucked up. They're giving you... This is the most wide open residential zone we've ever been in, where things are very open and for the most part unobstructed, but that came at a cost. Wide open terraces. And I did a lot of porting around. There are two top structures in the lower level, one and they're kind of off to the sides and then the upper level has one, but in the center this time. I don't think it's a mistake. I think this is the wide open town. Yeah, I noticed that I run faster than all the transportation in the city, which begs the question, what are these people doing with their time? Maybe none of them have jobs. Everything's automated. Uh, aside Maybe. from the lady who is a monster surveyor, nobody really needs to work. So they're like, yeah, I'll take the tram that takes five times longer than walking. But um, speaking of which, the High Entia all kind of moonwalk. Their legs move slowly and purposely with measured steps while their bodies glide preposterously faster than their animation should allow. It's a little bit of a disconnect as somebody who has a multimedia design artist in college had to master the art of animation and in several cases show people running and their legs propelling their bodies forward. They're not even being propelled by their wings. Their wings are just completely vestigial. They don't even idly move them. Yeah, if you could move... They just hang off their heads. Yeah, if you could move like five to six feet forward by just simply placing your foot one foot in front of you, that would be incredibly helpful in real life. But that's not how it works. We are bound mm -hmm. by the laws of gravity mm -hmm. and friction. We are. We so are. For the most part, the quests that we get at the at Arkhamoth are for the Aerith Sea, and so out we go on an expedition to kill everything and pick up everything. There are a variety of fresh new creatures out here. We run, we run into crews. Pagals, that's C-R-U-Z-P-A-G-A-L. They are crustaceans with a horned shell. Aerith Hilns, H-I-L-N, those are seagulls. Buono Nebulas, those are like the elemental clusters we see just about everywhere. Flavel Andos, which are these robots. They're panel-shaped, and they have a glowing teal core in the center and have an arc of stone hung over it, like as if they were shoulders and arms. We run into Ancels, A-N-S-C-L. Those are the prehistoric birds from Machina Forest. Not to be <clears> confused <throat> with incels. Yeah, right. Those are the prehistoric state of minds. Exactly. I you hit the nail on the head. We also see... Chloro, as in chlorophyll, Leia's, as in the princess. But these are flying blue manta rays with claws at the end of their fins. And um, there are a couple intelligent races out here. The jungle Jawas are back, but they're, I don't know, islanders now. They must be really, really hot under all of that clothing. Same for the Jawas. They're living in a fucking desert. What's going on with their situation? Oh, yeah. Same with normal Jawas. That's right. Uh, but we have a new savage beastman sort of race, and these are the Chromars. The Chromar was referenced uh, a minute ago by the guard that asked us to help him with the squad that was under attack. Just before we regained control of our party, the Chromar, they are also a rep 
Reptilian kind of race, kind of like the Igna, but these ones are taller, meaner, maybe more dragon-like. The X are back, those those horned zebra guys that we also saw in the forest. The, what were they called? The the race enslaved by the Jawas. They're here too. I have them listed, but it's earlier in my notes because I ran to them before I went to Alchemoth. Right. The Hode and the mm-hmm. Orluga are Orlugas, here. Orlugas, yes. They're back. Still enslaved, but enslaved in paradise. <laughs> hey, it's America. Spicy. Right. There's another creature I remember seeing. I don't have its name right now, but it was another... It was a flying water dragon-like creature. There are a lot of objectives with flying creatures that I was left messaging you asking, is there any fucking way to aggro this thing? I am waiting seaside here because you cannot engage anybody when you're in the actual water. So I'm waiting for Sharla to snipe one of these fuckers and bring it to the beach for my quest objective. And I'm just sitting there like, God damn it, I deep... He aggroed them again. A lot of flying shit in this chapter. For me personally, the quests are collapsing in on themselves at this point. And what I mean when I say that is, while doing one quest, I'll find an NPC who gives me three more. And I'm just like, no, shit, stop, please. I think I texted you a picture at one point of my map with like four quests on it. And I was like, I was just done. And then I stepped into this area. And here's four more. So, um... For the first time since starting this game, I muted the audio and I turned on your custom made muse playlist, Tyler, so that I could occupy my mind with something else. So um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I do want to talk about it quickly. At this point in the conversation, Nate and I descend into a seven-minute tangent on the band Muse. I'm cutting it here, but you can listen to it in the outtakes in part two. I did some exploring in Sea before I got to the capital for the first time, and I found that broken-down transporter that would later be repaired after we saved these fellows from the Chromar. So... That was a progress gate that held you back from exploring all of Sea immediately. So I saw some of it. Once they repair that teleporter, you get to see much more of it. Or at least you have access to more of the floating reefs. Yeah, I, and, I experienced uh, that too. I actually didn't make the connection that the people I rescued were the ones that repaired it. Because I was just so lost in the sauce at that point. Um, right. It, it is itself a quest, I think. Tyler, did you fight a cloud named Flabbergasted Jerome? Yes, I did. It's <laughs> just like, what the fuck am I looking at right now? Flabbergasted Jerome. This is the purest example of the elite, as we've been calling them, enemies, just having copy-pasted, randomly generated names. There's no way that somebody consciously named a fucking cloud Flabbergasted Jerome. Shulk is infinitely less fun to play without a tank because I'm doing Shulk, Riki, Sharla, right? You're Mm -hmm. not able to use any of the directional effects of his abilities because you are always the one with aggro. He has an ability that reduces his aggro and he's still the tank. Uh, Riki Mm -hmm. cannot step up to the plate in this regard. And so you just kind of end up spamming every move on cooldown and uh, hoping for the best. I experienced that as well, yeah. I wanted Riki to earn friendship points with Shulk. I had a similar team composition. Yeah, and as we outlined in earlier episodes, that 
relationship uh, diagram is not a triangle. Your supporting party members do not gain relationship with each other. So if you want to uh, create a relationship between two people, you've got to one of the two of them has to be your party leader. So as we as I continue, I have the note that says this zone might be too much. The map fog is causing me anxiety. You asked me that question earlier, and I will confirm that I did not uncover the entire map. Um, it draws me back to the days of mowing the lawn at 10 years old. Did you ever have to do that, Tyler? Where I you're... mowed plenty of lawn, and I continue to today. Yeah, so you're paving these small stripes and loathing the grand expanse you see before you. Now, I've seen yeah. where I've seen where you live... Um, in Eau Claire. So that lawn, I would say, is modest to some degree. Um, it's it's a great lawn. But uh, me growing up on Lake Osota, I had a two-hour uh, lawn mow experience. And you might be thinking, oh, that sounds great for a riding lawn mower. Yeah, my dad wasn't into the ride, riding lawnmower. He liked the stripes. Oh. He liked the stripes created by the push mower. So I had the push mower. My grandpa's house, we also had a non a a push mower without an engine. It was a wheels with a series of blades that spun with the wheels. So that was even more rigorous to mow his lawn with that old piece of shit. No automatic forward. Exactly. So I'll let you in on this little nugget here. As a kid, I had a sheet of paper on the fridge uh, called Nate's Mowdown, uh, a, a variation on hoedown. Um, and it was 15 squares that would be colored in with each lawn mowing. When all 15 were full, I would get a video game purchase. And yeah. uh, I, I calculated that with my dad's rate of wanting to enjoy the smell of freshly cut flora, the path between me and Tekken 3 was roughly a two-month wait. The king of Iron Fist Tournament. Enter the Tekken. And uh, I calculated out. I was like making roughly about a buck fifty an hour. But, you know, in like 1997 or 8 or whatever it was, that wasn't all that bad for being a kid. So I think he was pretty fair in that regard. Two hours. Yeah. It was there, a couple acres. Uh, well, it was, and again, it was a push mower, so it, it wasn't a huge lawn, but it just took a long time to do. And, uh -huh. um, you know... There was a lot of like uh, world building and role playing and ideas floating about in my head in those two hours because I didn't, you didn't have AirPods back then. You would have that big, clunky fucking CD player that skipped if it wasn't aligned perfectly, you know, or the Walkman yeah. with the tapes. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have any tapes. I didn't have a Walkman. I was a kid, so um, it was just me and my own stupid brain out there creating stories of why the people in street fighter are punching each other in the lawn. So, um, and as I immerse myself in the experience of heresy, I officially come to the conclusion that the zone is too much. It's like going to golden corral when you're not actually hungry. Your mom tells you to just stop eating. And I'm flooded with the idea of, okay, mom, when you stop watching Tucker Carlson, I will, but completionist Nate, now has a tummy ache officially completionist nate has a tummy ache some poetry in that nate your mind is wandered while you're questing in the same way your mind wanders when you are mowing the lawn that is 
exactly the metaphor that we needed in this to <laughs> to to make things clear these quests feel like mowing the lawn just as uncovering the map is it's a chore right it's something you have to do i want a clean quest log but damn it i can't get it not yet <laughs> maybe 60 more hours of gameplay i will at the end of the game or maybe it's 80 or 100 i have no freaking idea so i finish up things in the earth sea and i come back to alchemoth uh and this is where i'm confronted with several more in city quests to just talk to people and alchemoth citizens uh tells me my son has gone missing dunbin replies you seem troubled the kid is yeah. literally within eyesight the citizen yes. yeah the the citizen the citizen replies uh I'm still to blame for letting him out of my sight. So I'm confronted with the question, do the high entia know about glasses? Did have they mm. learned about spectacles? We we found by traversing the zone that they have discovered renewable energy through wind turbines, but they haven't figured out glasses yet because this kid was within eyesight of him and uh the man said he was out of his sight. So just think about that for a little bit. So I, I return to him, everything as well, and this, the same citizen tells me, my other kid went missing. <laughs> Shulk replies, you must be proud seeing them so full of life. I, I don't know what to say at this point, but at least this kid was obscured by a staircase 30 feet away. And now I'm just wondering, are the High Entia okay? I could send them like parenting books but i'm not sure there's an actual parenting book that like has a chapter that just says is your kid missing have you tried walking have you tried looking they're so relaxed and sedated in their high post-scarcity society that they just lose their kids Exactly. This is a clear indication of nobody knows how the city floats. They've been inundated in this lethargic society of non-existence where nobody does anything or is challenged in any way. And a kid strolls 30 feet away and they lose their fucking minds. It's, it's kind of concerning. I want to help them. Let's hope that this isn't representative of all parents here. Yeah. And I texted Tyler here. I said, this game has good quests and then absolute master classes on how to make pointlessly distracting immersion shattering nonsense. I agree with that. And I think the volume of quests speaks to that as well. I think that's the end of the side quest verse. So we kill the Chromar, we free the engineers and they fix the teleporter. We pat ourselves on the back and return to the capital. And right before we catch up to the plot again, I'm cutting it off here. Join us again next week for part two of the riveting discussion of this Sea chapter. Now that we've got the questing out of the way, we're ready to get back into the plot and see what's in store for Melia this chapter. Thanks for listening and for your patience while we get another episode out here. Have a nice day and we'll see you next week. Bye bye now.